In this video, we kick off our discussion of Chapter 9, Happiness from Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, with the subject of virtue as practical. Stay tuned. All right, so let's just jump in with our summary. So here we're looking at what Leonard puts as the fruits of the whole moral code that we've been describing, namely happiness, the rewards of practicing a pro-life morality. And the starting point is to contrast the objectivist approach with conventional morality, which presents us with this choice, morality versus practicality. And the objectivist view, by contrast, is going to hold that the moral is the practical. And what we get is that this isn't some like accidental feature with of the objectivist ethics. It's not like, oh, hey, great, it turns out that the moral is the practical. It's that we define the good by conformity to reality, to this world, and as in order that we can live in reality. And so Leonard puts it this way, the moral man's concept of the good we hold is his fundamental standard of practicality. Such a man experiences no conflict between what he thinks he ought to pursue, self-preservation, and what he wants to pursue. He defines all of his goals, fundamental and derivative alike, by reference to reality. As a result, he pursues only objects that are attainable by man, consistent with one another, and possible to him. He uses his mind to discover the means, including the principles, necessary to reach those objects, and he applies his knowledge in action, refusing to evade what he knows, to drift purposefully, purposelessly, or to sacrifice his interests. This, in Ayn Rand's view, is the description of human nobility. But we get that virtue can't guarantee success. Heirs of knowledge can keep us from succeeding. Other human beings can keep us from succeeding. Accidents can cause us to affect can cause us to fail but what morality does do is it ensures that we're on the path to long-range success in every aspect of our lives open to choice so quoting leonard again virtue minimizes the risks inherent in life and maximizes the chances of success morality teaches one how to gain and use the full power of one's mind how to choose one's associates how to organize society so that the best among men rise to the top it teaches one how to safeguard life and limb in principle, and therefore against every danger that can be foreseen. This does not give men omnipotence. What it gives them is the means of preventing, mitigating, or counteracting the innumerable evils that would otherwise be intractable. And then we get an analysis of evil, which is a topic we've t touched on throughout the book, but here we really get to stress on that the evil left to its own devices is impotent, that it's willful ignorance and defiance of reality, and as a result, it can create nothing, it can achieve nothing positive. It's purely a negative. Now, in the short run, it can appear practical, but part of what Rand's novels show is, and Leonard gives the example of the fountainhead, how over the long term and by the logic of the principles involved, the good ultimately has uh, will triumph and the evil ultimately fails and it's only our inverted moral code the code of sacrifice that leads us to associate evil with value 
rather than loss because it teaches us that the evil is practical here on this earth and it teaches that when we see the practical we should be on the lookout for evil because it's only evil that can make success possible but from the objectivist point of view evil only has this one power the power to destroy and the good by contrast is creative it's about achieving positives by thought effort consistency so then that would raise the question okay well then why hasn't evil been a marginal element of human life like looking throughout history why has it seemed to be powerful why has it often been dominant and here the answer we get is because of support from the good so quoting leonard again in the ethics that so far has ruled the world, the transfusion of value from the deserving to the undeserving is regarded as the essence of virtue. The virtuous man, by definition, must work to bring about the success of parasites. This theory is the formal demand for the arming of evil. In Ayn Rand's historic identification, it is the demand for the sanction of the victim. This means, he goes on to say, the moral man's approval of his own martyrdom, his agreement to accept and return for his achievements, curses, robbery, and enslavement. It means a willingness to embrace his exploiters, to pay them ransom for his virtues, to condone and help perpetuate the ethical code which feeds off those virtues, which expects them and counts on them. At every moment, it is damning them as sin and condemning their exponents to hellfire, supernatural, or secular. What is the source then we get of this moral practical dichotomy? And we get that the most obvious tangible source of it is the soul body dichotomy. That the, as Leonard puts it, the advocate of this viewpoint shrugs resignedly when he sees the morality he preaches leads to disaster in practice. Everyone knows, he says, that morality is a spiritual concern and that the spiritual is opposed to the physical. And what this amounts to is it's severing principles from reality, theory from practice, and ultimately we get, and this is the source of the moral practical dichotomy, the deepest philosophic source, it's severing concepts and percepts. Leonard says, nothing but a false theory of concepts can explain the worldwide scorn today for the conceptual guidance offered by principles. Such scorn would be impossible to a man who regarded conceptualization as the means of knowing existence, but it is necessary to the disciples of intrinsicism and subjectivism who make abstractions useless by detaching them from percepts. The intrinsicists have the effrontery to build on this uselessness. Be loyal to principles apart from reality, they say, and suffer the consequences, which is misery here on earth. To which the subjectivists reply, that is the price of being principled, and it is too high. So they conclude, anything goes. Objectivism, by contrast, upholds a true theory of concepts, one that unites percepts and concepts, rejects the mind-body dichotomy, and thereby unites what should have never been divided the moral and the practical. So I want to back up just very briefly and say, the look at the purpose of this chapter. So we're talking about happiness. And you can think, all right, well, what's being added here? And one way to think about it is if you think about what we did in these videos, 
I started with a discussion of Ayn Rand's approach to ethics and how she actually started with more spiritual needs and that it was only when she came to the final perspective that she fully integrated the spiritual and the biological and, and was able to see that the real distinction that we face is not between um, what you can think of as existing versus living, but that ultimately it was a literal life and death difference that morality was capturing. But that it, the her focus from the beginning was that morality is about the quest for personal happiness. And, I, and we talked about the way in which Opar is really fleshing out her final perspective on ethics. And so what this chapter is doing, you can think about, is bringing in happiness as kind of the culmination of a focus on self-preservation. It's, okay, we've looked at the biological foundation of ethics, and now we're integrating it with the spiritual nature of that goal. To live is to be and achieve and pursue happiness. So then let's look at the purpose of this section. And, I mean, one thing that should be a little bit striking, I mean, you could really look at this section and think, what the hell is Leonard doing here? Because it's a little weird when you think about it. We just spent pages and pages and pages of explanation on how objectivism establishes values and virtues by reference to what will achieve the goal of self-preservation, what will keep you in this world and help you thrive in this world. And so like now we're just saying, oh, hey, it turns out that these principles that were designed to achieve success really achieve success. Um, but I think there's a real reason that he's bringing this up and bringing this up now. And I think it goes to the larger purpose of this chapter. And in essence, I think what's being underscored here is what we've done in the preceding chapters is a completely different way to think about morality than the conventional view. And I don't just mean that the objectivist view rejects sacrifice, which should have been clear, but it, it's that objectivism is not just saying that our morality has different rules or something like that. It's that the whole concept of morality, all of the connotations, everything about conventional morality is being thrown out that morality far from being something that comes up on occasion in order to hold you back from happiness um, morality is about the otherworldly and the non-you and the chaste all of that is wrong all of that is being rejected that this is uh, a a a way of thinking about morality that is completely and totally counter to everything we've heard so you can think of about leonard is effectively saying look we've been talking about virtues and values and in all likelihood you're still probably thinking of them as rules you have to follow duties that restrain you but no this is all about how to get what you want here on earth and don't think about morality as renunciation or as Ram puts it in Galt's speech, you know, a scarecrow chasing away your pleasures. Morality is a, it should be an exciting realm that you're constantly thinking about and associating with joy, pleasure, orgasmic pleasure, as we'll see when we get to sex. 
So let's then talk a little bit more about the relationship between the moral and the practical. And my main thing that I want to recommend here is a talk given by Ankar Gatte that I'm sure I've referenced multiple times in these videos because it's one of my favorites called The Moral and the Practical. And you can find that on YouTube. And uh, if I'm diligent, it will be in the show notes. And part of what Ankar stresses is that from one perspective, the moral practical dichotomy is crazy because what's practical depends on what you want to practice. And morality is supposed to tell you what it is you want to practice. So how could there ever be a dichotomy? And that's where he gets into the soul-body dichotomy, that the morality of sacrifice is aimed not at success in this world, but it's that, no, we're serving, we're doing what's required in order to kind of abide by or conform to the next world, to some higher reality. And so it's, yeah, morality is about what you should practice, but what you should practice for something beyond this earth. And why would you ever expect it, therefore, to lead to earthly success? And so ultimately, the moral practical dichotomy comes from a religious view, but it's also secularized by altruism, by the which di divides the world, not necessarily up into this world and the next, but into the you and the non-you. And those are two different universes. And it's so it's not that people think, well, there's different moral theories and, you know, uh, I'm going to uphold an impractical one. It's that morality is about the non-you. If you're talking about how to get what you want, you aren't even in the realm of morality. You're in the realm of the practical. Morality has nothing to do with that. That's a separate universe. And so the result is that to the extent people accept this kind of framework, moral, moral thinking is irrelevant to daily life and practicality becomes amoral and conventional. You can't think first-handedly about your goals, about your deepest, most fundamental goals, about what's truly desirable, because that's precisely what morality is supposed to teach you. And so essentially what the moral practical dichotomy encourages is second-handedness, is doing what everybody else is doing. It's, it's being, as Ankar stresses, it, it encourages the conventional. And so what objectivism says by contrast in rejecting the moral practical dichotomy is that you should be striving for earthly ideals and asking, am I actually living up to my ideals? Am I striving to realize them? That this kind of moral thinking about your life and about uh, how to conduct your life should be an ongoing selfish part of living. So definitely check out Ankar's talk, which goes into that and a lot more i want to focus then next on what you can think of as the crucial importance of reality-based goals and if you remember one of the quotes i talked about or i cited from this section where leonard's talking about iron's conception of human nobility he's really stressing this idea that you're that the moral person is developing um reality-based goals goals that are for success here on earth and that are achievable by you here on earth. So it takes a lot of work to formulate an achievable ideal. I think that's part of what Leonard is arguing and objectivism is arguing is that 
to have something that can be achieved here on earth, the best possible kind of life, um, trying to figure out what that would look like takes a lot of effort. Or to put it differently, to formulate ambitious goals that are possible to you and consistent with one another is an incredible intellectual feat. And I mean, that's in effect what Ayn Rand's doing in her ethics and her novels. Is she's saying, this is a kind of life. These are um, a kind of unity of goals that are achievable, that fit together, and that add up to the best possible of life. And so part of what it means to say that the moral is the practical is that morality is necessary to help you formulate ambitious, achievable consistent goals. It says, this is what's possible to you. This is what you should go after. And so, I mean, take one example or one common mistake that people make that they'll aim at comparative goals, right? Uh, I was looking at Leonard's, um, a book based on his podcast and a bunch of people would ask questions like, well, I want to write a novel, but I can never do anything like Atlas Shrugged. And part of what morality teaches you is like that is not an achievable goal. It's not the kind of goal that one should embrace if one is striving for the best life possible because it's comparative. And, and morality teaches you that no, set goals that are not comparative. It's about your relationship to reality. It's not about being richer or more successful and in any way better than somebody else. And like if you want to be a novelist, it's can I create stories that I'm proud of, that I enjoy writing, and that other people find valuable so that I can build a career on it. Um, but it's not about outdoing anybody else. And so it's not just that our moral principles have to be practical. It's that to be practical, you need to be really thinking about morality. Morality is what allows you to project an achievable ideal, the best possible kind of life. And what I'm trying to stress here is that both those are, are crucial. It's the best life that's possible to achieve. And that is really why you need morality. You need it. You, the union of the moral and the practical um, is really highlighting the way in which moral thinking is the only way to get this unity of achievable goals and to guide yourself in the quest to bring them into reality. A new topic, and this goes to a new, a deeper perspective on just what virtues are. So we've said in past videos, sorry about that, my cat just jumped towards me and apparently wants attention, but she will not get it because that would be impractical. Um, We've said in past videos that virtues, they're causal principles and they're not trade-offs. Like it's not, well, if I lie, there's a 40% chance I'll get caught and a 60% chance I'll get some loot. And what morality says is that if you kind of work out the calculation, it's better to be honest. And no, we said that what morality is, is what virtues are, is they're necessary conditions for success that in order to achieve self-preservation, you have to live according to moral principles. Now, in this section, we get a more precise take on that, on exactly what 
moral principles are and the sense in which they're causal principles, it's that they they don't guarantee success. So this is what it means. So they're necessary conditions, but not sufficient. We've had that. But what they do guarantee, and this is the new point, they guarantee success in every respect in which success is open to choice. That's the key point. It's that they guarantee success in every respect in which that is open to choice. If you remember our discussion of philosophy way back from video one, we said that philosophy is about giving full control over your mind by bringing out your deepest assumptions and your thinking, self-critically examining them, making sure that they're true, and then self-consciously using them to guide your thinking and action after that. And we talked about this distinction between the metaphysical and the man-made and said that what we want to cultivate more generally is to accept the things we cannot change and change the things we can, that, that you want to, within the realm of that which is open to choice, um, you want to exercise that choice in kind of a pro-life way as possible. And so to say that virtue is practical is to say, by exercising the virtue of rationality, including the derivative virtues, we achieve a fundamental positive control over our lives. We can't exert total control over our lives, but this is what it means to exert maximum control. It's to put everything within the power of choice on the, on the side of success and happiness. And that by contrast, the irrational evasion, this is deliberately putting yourself out of control. And so it's what we want is to maximize the control of our own lives, to control the things we can change. And virtue tells us how to do that. Um, and that is the source of its power. And then finally, we also get in this section the most dangerous way in which we surrender control over our own lives. And that is we aid our own destroyers. And this is the issue of the sanction of the victim. So on the objectivist view, it's life is not a, it's a completely non-religious view, which is, again, what we're getting in this chapter, I think, is a really um, trying to revise in people's mind what the subject of morality is about, what it should connote, uh, that this is a completely different way of moral thinking. And part of what's different is that we don't see life as a struggle of two opposing forces. It's on the one side evil and on the other side good. It's not a struggle externally. You know, there's not the forces of Satan roaming the earth and dueling with God. Nor is it even a struggle internally where evil offers these amazing temptations and being good is the equivalent of like you're lifting weights and at some point like you just you, your ability to hold out breaks, right? Um, it's that we have the volitional ability to put everything on the side of the good. And if we do that, the evil has no power. The evil depends on the good giving it power. And that is a matter of choice. And part of what this section should illustrate then is that the reason evil has been such a dominant feature of human life is precisely because we have surrendered to it not through just some like innate weakness or something, but through the ideas we accept. 
you if you go back and listen to our discussion of Galt's speech, what part of what Galt argues is that what unleashed evil was precisely because we split the world into spirit and body and sided with a morality of sacrifice that said the good is to place the next life above this one or to put the non-you above the you or to put it in the terms of this section it's because we split the moral and the practical that is precisely what gave evil power and so what's required in order to save your soul in the world it's to discover morality to discover a practical this worldly pro-happiness morality so that's it for this video be sure to like this video subscribe to the youtube channel and as always the best way to stay in contact is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter talk next time